Welcome to No Challenges Remaining, live from London, albeit different places in London. Me and Courtney are. I'm Ben Rothenberg. She's Courtney Nguyen. How are you doing, Courtney? Welcome to the capital of the United Kingdom. Yeah, lovely to be here. It's a little rainy at the moment, although I also dodged an incredible hailstorm that was apparently going to hit Eastbourne uh, to get to the train to get back this way. But yeah, settled in-ish and I guess ready to go for the third major of the year. It feels like the second major of the year is still kind of in my system a little bit. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, this has come This has come quickly. Do we need to form a support group for people who lived through the French Open? Because I feel like, I, I probably people <laughs> ask me, like, how was it? And I was just like, it's not good. Like, I don't, you're making me sad thinking about it. You know, it, it was not, not a fun time. But I think Wimbledon, I've been here a couple of days, the weather's been better, which is just such a low bar, they said, the French Open. Um, but yeah, chin up, I think. I think we'll be doing okay with tennis here from now on. Right. That kind of had, had to be kind of rock bottom. The French. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, I was I can't remember who I was talking to today in Eastbourne, but it was somebody else who was also who had also been working the uh, the tournament in uh, in Paris. And yeah, I think that we all just kind of agreed. And it's what we talked about in the last episode or our episode, you know, after the French Open, which was that the weather, it impacts just everything. And it's not just the play that, that's on the court, but also just your mood and everybody's mood and, you know, people who, you know, who were commentating, who had to prepare to, to call certain matches. And so you did all your homework and then that match didn't go on that day. And, uh, you know, things are getting pushed back, all these sorts of things. It, it, it was a lot to throw at us. So I think that you're right. I think that that was kind of maybe rock bottom. And I think that everything else has to be better, right? I, I, has to be. That's my working theory. Let's go with that. And this episode will be pretty cool because we're going to have the meat of it be a re-air, our first ever NCR re-air. It's a pretty common thing for podcasts. We've never done it. Uh, we're going to re-publish uh, here the walkthrough uh, I did at Wimbledon. I'm still on site, actually, at SW19 right now uh, with that I did last year with Alex Willis behind the scenes at Wimbledon, which is very cool. A lot of you are new listeners within the last 12 months, so hopefully you will enjoy that. And if you have heard it already, it's worth hearing again. And I talked to Alex uh, about things that have happened in the last 12 months uh, to tee up that interview. So we'll get to all that in a bit. But firstly, Courtney, how was Eastbourne? We each had a grass tournament we've been to so far. In the lead up, how was your WTA premiere event on the Channel Coast? I have to say that, and this may surprise people, especially people who have been to, to Eastbourne, the city, and also uh, the Aegon International, the, the tournament in Eastbourne, but it's one of my favorite tournaments of the, of the year. And I just always really enjoy it. And I think that there's a, a couple of things that go into that. One is that it's Eastbourne as a city because it's this beach town. Um, you know, I don't want to... Uh, lead anyone astray. I mean, it was pretty rainy and cold. <laughs> it's not like, you know, we're we're down in Malibu or anything like that. Or Mallorca. Or Mallorca, exactly. But it it is kind of a very relaxed city to be in for a few days before a slam. I think that it's it's kind of the perfect lead up in a lot of ways, at least for me. I mean, I, I don't necessarily have to do Eastbourne uh, every year. I think I skipped it last year because I was doing that whole Women's World Cup car thing through Canada. But um, 
but this year, you know, to, to come back and just experience it again, it's lovely. It's a lovely small tournament. It's, um, you know, it's a premier level grass event. You know, the, the crowds are great. The people know their tennis. You know, I, I talked to quite a few fans uh, in and around the grounds who, who just were geeking out on it and wanted to geek out about tennis, which was really, really wonderful. And so it's just nice. And the players are in a good mood. They're excited about obviously Wimbledon coming up, but also, you know, to get some, some matches under their belt, you know, the grass season is still obviously so short, but also so new. So they don't seem all that drained or anything like that. So everybody was in good spirits. Um, it's a nice, you know, press crew that's there as well. And, you know, well run um, and everything. So yeah, I mean, I was only there from Friday until today, which we're recording on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening. So I'm finally back to London. But uh, other than the Southern Rail having strike issues, apparently, <laughs> and it was just an absolutely calamitous effort to get ourselves down to Eastbourne, anybody who was going down there with trains being uh, canceled left and right. Outside of that, really good time, good food. There's a great Belgian bar slash restaurant that we shut down, I think, three nights in a row. Uh, because they were showing the Euro games on the big screen. And, um, you know, why not watch some Euros and, uh, you know, have some good chat and eat some mussels and frites, you know? It's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good gig. Yeah. It's not so bad. No. I mean, I think that's definitely, that's what I've been to Eastbourne, too. It was the first tournament I actually ever covered as credential media back in 2008. Fun Ben Rothenberg trivia fact. And, yeah. It <laughs> that will never be useful. No, just absolutely never. Um, yeah, and it's uh, it's a very cool tour. And, and it's small. And I think the same thing's sort of true of Hala. I mean, Hala is very out of the way. Um, it's one week earlier than than Eastbourne, so it's not quite the same exact lead-up. Uh, although, yeah, it's still, for most players, they're the last tournament they play before Wimbledon. Yeah, it's, it's sort of quiet, small town with a big, passionate crowd. And you can feel like you're in a bit of a, a, a oasis or a sanctuary or a training camp if you want just away from the the buzz which i don't think queen's club for example has queen club queen's club is a very urban tournament um right and so is yeah but i think players for the slam maybe the same way a little bit of people like the relatively quiet mason ohio experience before uh the u.s open i think these two grass court tournaments even more so because grass has this sort of whole sort of gardeny vibe to it that they cultivate uh eastbourne especially but being coastal and sort of a retirement community, um, I think that, yeah, that's a that's a definite nice thing to have for a Grand Slam, and hopefully, it leads nicely into the tranquility of Wimbledon. Yeah, it does have kind of the same vibe, and I think you're right. I, I would kind of the ATP analog to me would be Hala, because you get a good field, and you know, and it's still fine, but it is quaint and. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, I think the players really enjoy being able to stay and walk to the site if they want to. I mean, they're literally, I don't know, probably less than 200 meters in Hala, from, yeah. from the entrance. In Hala, uh, it's even less at East one. In Hala, yeah, Hala so, the hotel is literally on site. So yeah, that's so, pretty cool. And it's, and it's lovely. And same for, for me. I mean, working there, uh, it's just an easy uh, experience. You know, you walk to work, you walk home. On your way home, you stop to to grab a bite or grab a grab a beer or whatever, and um, catch up with friends. And uh, yeah, it's it's lovely. It was so it was a good week. The players were in a good mood, very chatty, a lot of lot of cracking of the jokes in press uh, and things like that. So, you know, perfectly loving. I think that the biggest um, focus, and maybe this is a little bit of a, a help in terms of keeping the players a little bit relaxed in Eastbourne is that even though it is a big tournament insofar as it's a premier level tournament and it's leading directly into Wimbledon, I think for most players who go there, they're kind of just looking for matches. It's not about winning the title That's necessarily. True. And you sometimes you see know, that in a bad way with some of the pullouts you get. 
Sure. Yeah. yeah, it can definitely affect that. And that's going to always happen with, you know, lead up tournaments. But yeah. but yeah, they're, they're looking because the grass season's so short. And, and that's what makes, you know, uh, winning Wimbledon or winning on grass so challenging is that you don't have time to prepare. It's not hard court and it's not clay. The clay season's like two months long. You have plenty of tournaments to, you know, get your clay legs. And in grass, you just don't. And you could enter all three weeks of the, the Wimbledon lead up and play three matches. And then go play Wimbledon. You know what I mean? Yep. Like that's so. So it can definitely be be tricky. But yeah. So it it's been lovely. I've I had a great time in Eastbourne. So it's uh, I I was sad to go today. Put it that way. Uh, I would have loved to have stayed a couple more days. Let's talk about the lead up. I guess uh, start with the women because that's where we've been talking about for mostly Eastbourne and Birmingham. I guess watching too and Mallorca and Nottingham. I guess what what are your main takeaways in terms of things we we learned so far on the grass because it's an interesting lead up because for example the everyone's favorite to win Wimbledon I presume is still Serena Williams and she did not play same with Novak when we get to the men Novak Djokovic is the overwhelming favorite to win the men's title here and he didn't play a grass court warm 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 sorry warm up tournament either but I guess from the players we did see Courtney any any major takeaways or any big breakouts that anybody changed there. Uh, stock for Wimbledon for much better or potentially for worse? Um, I think the biggest thing is is just kind of, um, I guess, confirmation that the players who are playing well are playing well. So, you know, you had Dominic Team obviously, out there in Halle doing yeah. what he did. We know he's playing well. And he won Stuttgart. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and uh, in Stuttgart. And yeah, he's playing well. Um, and we know that. We still had question marks as to whether or not he's playing too much. And, you know, is he going to get tired? And he, he kind of put all of those questions aside, um, you know. And so there's that aspect of it. You also have uh, Madison Keys, who we know plays well on grass. But she's continuing yeah. her great run of form. Rome final, you know, uh, a loss that doesn't seem that bad now, losing to Kiki Burton's in uh, at the French Open and now going on and winning in Birmingham, making the top 10. Massive. Coco Vandeweghe. I mean, a fantastic grass season for her so far. And, and she's going to be dangerous, I think, at Wimbledon, depending on, on, on her draw, though she will be seated. So I think it's more yeah. like that. I don't think that anything has really surprised me. Caroline Garcia, I mean, winning in Mallorca, I thought was was great because we don't really think of her as a grass court player. Um, but there's no reason she can't be. Yeah, there's no reason that she yeah. can't be. Exactly. And so there are just players who it seems that they have taken the momentum of the last like probably four or five weeks and it's continued onto the grass. Even if you take like a player like a Christina Mladenovic, she's playing pretty good tennis these days. Um, it's, it, it's much more consistent. And so, and that's, you know, show, that's showing in her matches as well. So I think that on the whole, the people that I thought were going to do well or looked like they were riding, uh, you know, some momentum into the grass season seem to be doing exactly that. I think I agree with that. And I think the biggest, you mentioned her, the biggest riser for me, I think is Coco. I just, what she did by winning her second Sir Togenbosch title, going deep, backing it up at Birmingham. I mean, she made a quarterfinal here, really kind of relatively out of nowhere. I don't think anybody was flagging her pre-tournament. She went, went through an incredibly tough draw, beat uh, Pliskova, Stoser, Safarova, Safarova right after the French runner-up, and then took Sharapova to three sets in the quarters. Um, she's absolutely, I think, one of the most dangerous of the bottom half seeds. And if she gets something like uh, she could possibly play Serena third round or any top eight seed in the third round, that'd be a nightmare draw for any of them. I think with how much confidence she has and how comfortable she is on the big stage in a way that as it has her whole career, her confidence is sort of always outpaced her results and her stage presence is outpaced her results. And now the results are 
catching up and validating that pretty well. So she's definitely, I think, my biggest uh, riser of these three weeks on the women's side for sure. Yeah, no, I, I can't argue with that. I mean, what was your take on the men's side, Ben? Obviously, you were in Hala, uh, so you were right there in the thick of everything with the Roger Federer return and all these sorts yeah. of things. So, so what were what were your takeaways in Hala? I have to confess, I wasn't paying attention to it That's as right. much as I was kind of mentally checked out um, in Edinburgh. <laughs> as you're allowed to be, for sure. Uh, no, I think for me, I would say Roger's definitely not all the way back. He was the main person I was there, you know, anyone, everyone was there paying attention to. And he had two losses in the semifinals of Stuttgart and then Hala to the team and then Alex Zverev or Sasha Zverev or Alexander Zverev, whatever you want to call him. A lot of people on Twitter don't realize that Sasha and Alexander are the same person. Really? So if you ever say Sasha, they're like, no, it's Alexander. That's weird. I guess they think that you're think they think you're talking about his brother, who's Misha. I don't know. It's a whole thing with Sasha as a name. <laughs> it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I don't think that Federer was there. I mean, his, against Zverev, he was not good at all. His movement was pretty was pretty shaky, and it led to a lot of issues on his ground strokes, especially. Um, he has a whole another week to recover and get shake the rust off. There was definite rust for him, um, but I would not be penning him into my semifinals in my draw without looking pretty critically at who he has to play and tracking his form. Uh, before the draw comes out. We'll talk about the draws when they do come out. Uh, yeah, so that was my main takeaway from the grass, having not seen the uh, Djokovic, the other recent champion here. And then Murray Murray played really well, too. Uh, Murray got through uh, he did, yeah. a, a big a big final in Queens against Milos Ronic, who also played really well. And Milos Ronic is one of the definite players to watch at Wimbledon, which I've said, everyone says forever. Um, but he get his, gets his seed bumped up. He's going to be a top eight seed at Wimbledon. The McEnroe distraction, whatever. He'll get a lot more attention than usual. Uh, because of that and yeah I, I think Ronich on his peak is one of the very few players who with if with that draw could really scare someone like a Djokovic in the in the quarterfinals I guess it wouldn't be before that but he he, he just controls his own destiny in a way on grass that few other players do yeah he, t- he takes the uh he takes the uh the racket out of your hand you yeah. know when he's playing well on this surface in particular and you know even against Andy Murray he led you know what a set and a break I believe in that second set yeah. before Andy Murray storm storm back. Points for a double break or something. Yeah, like something. Yeah. It was very. I mean, it was looking like a blowout really in that final, and then Murray clawed it back and was able to to take it in three. So, you know, that wasn't necessarily like a clean kill from Andy Murray in that that uh, that final. But with Raonic, you know, that's it's great to see that from him. It's it was definitely. I think we've discussed this before on the podcast. A disappointment. I think that Milos wasn't able to you know keep going with what he showed in australia yeah he uh, because winning clay seasons for anybody exactly and he and and even in the the well not, i guess well, not the, the u.s he made any wells yeah not india wells in india wells obviously he played well but then after that it just felt like for a few months there milos was a slight afterthought and maybe that's just you know the the effect of clay season clay will do that to quite a few players that we we think of as being top quality players you know we know that the clay is not like a victoria azarenka for example um who once the clay season hit kind of became a little bit of an afterthought uh simply because of injuries and things but yeah i would like to see milos kind of like get a kickstart here on grass i'm not saying go and win wimbledon but to then to carry that through into the summer hard courts into the olympics and and see what he can do because Again, I mean, still one of the most jaw-dropping performances really was him in in both in Brisbane and uh, um, was it Brisbane? It yeah, was Brisbane, Brisbane. Where he won, yeah. He won Brisbane. Yeah, Brisbane and uh, at the and the Australian Open. So, you know, I I would like to see him kind of carry that through and and kind of 
double down on his achievement unlocked um, nature of, of, of that January. So, you know, it's good to see him back and, and playing good tennis. And hopefully it can be about Milos and not about John McEnroe because that whole super coach thing is, I think, um, I have issues with all of it. You but... do. Discuss your issues with this while we have you here, Courtney. <laughs> it's a, pre, a pre-rant rant for you. Sure. Because you have been throwing visible eye rolls on Twitter <laughs> at the Supercoach narrative. I will say, in defense of the narrative, and I tweeted about it once, like, what I hope, which was meant to be sarcastic. I hope people saw it as sarcastic. They probably didn't. Um, but just, I feel like with the ATP being so predictable, people just need narratives to cling to. Like, how are you going to hype a Ronich versus Big Four match when he almost never beats them without... A, 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 a new storyline. Of course. I mean, obviously having the super coaches back in, whether it's Lendl, whether it's McEnroe, whatever, creates new storylines and new angles with which to cover a player. And as you said, tennis is a bit of a hermetically sealed universe. I mean, when the results are consistent and when the players and not, I don't mean players in a generic term, but the players, the contenders are almost always the same you're grasping for anything and everything. And I think that my frustration though, with the whole super coach narrative is really um, a part of a broader complaint. I suppose I have with tennis coverage, which is that even before McEnroe joined up with team round edge, I never understood the whole, I'm going to run and go get a quote from John McEnroe. And then I'm going to get John McEnroe says a crazy thing. And then now I'm going to write a story on it. Here's what John McEnroe thinks about this. Here's what John McEnroe thinks about that. Um, Greg Gruzetsky said this. Uh, Tim Henman believes this. Um, you know, that sort of like type of tennis coverage or tennis articles, they really drive me insane because they don't matter. It doesn't matter what John McEnroe thinks and it doesn't matter what Greg Gruzetsky thinks. What matters is what these players do on a court. And so I think that that's my own personal bias. So when he then joins Team Raonic and it therefore even further amplifies like his status or Lendl's status or, or whatever it is, it becomes, I don't know, it becomes exhausting. I get very, very tired of those. I think that that's very lazy. Honestly, I'll just say it. I, I just think it's very lazy tennis writing to just take a legend's quote and spin it into something when it doesn't really actually move the ball forward. It's not actually interesting critical analysis. You're just using it because it's weirdly clickbait on some level. Um, that's when I get frustrated. There you go. That was a fairly hot take, Courtney. Was it? I, I don't think I, that it's that I, hot. I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I don't disagree. I think that for better or worse, we talked about this a little bit before, I'm sure. We talked <laughs> hundred, whatever, 80 episodes we have now. We talked about everything at some point. <laughs> True. But, but tennis is blessed and burdened, I think, by having – the big stars so still present in the game. I mean, people mention the Borg-McEnroe final, let's say, the 1980 one especially, at Wimbledon so much more than, like, any Super Bowl that happened 35 years ago or any, you know, NBA right. finals happened 35 years ago or any World Series. It's just because these players are still there doing the commentary and hanging around and being in the Royal Box and being visible and being pundits and, you know, doing occasional interviews where they say... You know, I don't know, like John McEnroe thinks that Garbina Muguruza can win 10 slams. That's a made up title. But, you know, it, that would be a headline if he said that. And sure. why does anyone care? I mean, like, or why does, why, why is, not that, why does anyone care? People like McEnroe get that. But that shouldn't be, I feel like the sport can be held back by relying on that and kind I, of too much. And I relying, relying on those characters yeah. to be the ones people recognize. Like, I think, I don't think Wimbledon ratings would be hurt 
meaningfully if John Macker wasn't in the booth. I really don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I but he's there and he's doing his thing. And, and it's not just that. And I don't want it to like focus on just McEnroe, but I... I don't have a problem. I just want to clarify. I don't have a problem with like the quotes pieces, the legends quote pieces, when the legends show their work, when they act as a proper pundit. And they're like, I think that, yeah, I don't know. Garbina Muguruza is going to win 10 slams. And here's why. And and I'm going to explain it. And I'm going to actually show you that, like, you know, where they are acting as a true pundit, as a true opinion maker and giver. I'll say, uh, as a foreign player is particularly good at this. Yes, I think yeah, I think Martina Navratilova is good at it. And I will say this, having been on the uh, ESPN conference call this week uh, with uh, Chris Everett and John McEnroe, that Chris Everett has gotten so much better on this. She She's, does her homework. She has done her homework. And she had a lot of takes on that call about anything and everything that was, that was thrown at her. And she was, I, I just found myself reading and nodding and being like, and she was showing her work. She wasn't just saying things off the cuff and putting out an opinion, like a tweet, you know what I mean? And just leaving it there. But there would be like 10 follow-up tweets to be like, because, and here, let me show my work. And that to me, I respect so much more. And I think that it's so much more valuable because obviously a former player and especially a legend, a great is going to, their opinion is going to matter a little bit more because they, they obviously accomplished great things and they've seen, they've been in those situations so they can add something that obviously we can't. Um, and they have an authority there, but they need to go beyond just like, this is what I think. It's like, no, show me your work. And I th- I feel like there are just certain, certain pundits that legend pundits that are out there that don't do that. But I feel like they constantly get a mic put in front of them because the things that they say are so crazy and so headline worthy that it's a story in and of itself. And I'm just like, I, and, and it just happens a lot. And it, I, I find it infuriating there we go uh you mentioned you used the five or six minutes ago you used the verb kickstart which reminds <laughs> me that since we last recorded racket magazine reached its kickstarter goal <laughs> so thank you to any NCR listeners who might have been part of that success so just wanted to throw that in there before and you can still subscribe yeah you can still subscribe you guys it's uh, obviously they met their kickstarter goal at fifty thousand dollars which is incredible i think that's a huge statement um i think to again to a lot of people about like what people value and and that that tennis fans that's a huge goal and i think that both ben and i were like i don't know yeah we're like that's a lot of money um but yeah i I think that's massive so if you haven't subscribed to racket magazine and you still want to you obviously can just go to their website um and uh subscription is 50 dollars, i believe and they're shipping internationally so you know you can still still get in there and they just released like the cover of the first um issue which is a a beautiful illustration of yannick noah and there's a story in the first issue written by our very good friend Carol Bouchard in that uh, uh, that that issue. So and there's a lot of obviously other great writers um, in there as well. So, you know, you can still subscribe and get excited. I'm excited. I, I think that they're just working so hard on it and it's going to be amazing. Let's roll the excitement right now into Alex Willis, who I chatted with today to catch up on the uh, doings at Wimbledon. She is the head of content and digital at Wimbledon and runs a whole lot of things and does a whole lot of awesome stuff. So first is our conversation today, and then we'll re-air from last year's episode 111, uh, the walk-around tour that she gave me last year, uh, so, which is definitely worth checking out and savoring, even if my ridiculous 
accidental subconscious mirroring of her British accent at some point on this tour <laughs> is fairly mortifying, which was, again, totally unintentional. And I am not ashamed to admit that, that is horrible. That so, said, if there if there is a British accent to mirror... Hers is the best. Hers is the best. Alex has, like, the cleanest, best British accent ever. She's the one, like, who Americans, like, try to imitate. Like, in terms yes. of being, like, uber, uber posh and just sounding so elegant Educa- and sophisticated. And educated. Yeah. Which she is. And so she is, in all those ways, very Wimbledon. And in all those ways. Wimbledon Willis, we call her. Very cool. Exactly. And here is Wimbledon Willis. So I am back on Henman Hill with my dear Alex Willis. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Ben. What? So we we're gonna replay the walking tour we did last year, which was incredible and wonderful, magical, all those things, comprehensive. How's the last year been for you since you last left our NCR listeners, however, 12 months ago? How is how have you been? How has Wimbledon been? I I can't believe it's been 12 months. It seems like 12 years and also <laughs> like 12 seconds. Um, we're we're seated this time. Yeah. We're obviously another year older. <laughs> and uh, we don't have the stamina to walk around anymore. Um but no things have been good. We've um we've been we've been very busy. We've been doing a lot of things here in the uh however long it's been 11 months since since people were last here. No, 13 months since people were last here. I can't do maths. I think 11. Um I can't do maths. And um uh there's been a lot of work done uh preparation for the number one court roof okay so visitors to to the tournament this year won't see quite the same scale of new facilities and stuff that we talked about last time um but uh as soon as this tournament finishes it's all gung-ho taking off the existing number one court roof that we're actually looking at right now we're just in front of the big screen on the hill um all that roof's going to be taken off um and they'll start building uh stuff for the new roof so this tournament next year It'll be a completely open court, like um, it was in two thousand seven on Centre Court. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so people get their their pictures, uh, you know, cameras ready because it'll be quite an interesting sight. And then the idea is that then in twenty eighteen the fixed roof is back, and then by twenty nineteen the the retractable roof will be there. So, there's been a lot of work done for that. Um, we've been very busy in in uh, my world of, of digital um, and social and trying to build on all the stuff that we did last year well I will say in the last 12 months you've also picked up several more trophies which is sort of a hobby of yours haven't you <laughs> that's very yeah. kind I mean it's you just it, brag just brag for a bit what have you won in the last in the last 12 months I can't brag that would be very uh, very unbritish and very unwimbledon but okay. um, I will say that we're delighted that our work um, in uh, digital and social has been recognised with with four awards. Mm -hmm. Uh, We won the Webby's Award for um, Best Use of Social Media, which is a pretty big deal. The Webby's are uh, apparently a big deal. And then we won a couple of uh, awards here in the UK, the Sport Industry Awards for Digital Platform for Wimbledon.com and for social media. Good stuff. And uh, also one for fan engagement. So um, unfortunately what that means is that we have to sort of set the bar and try and raise it more. Um, so we, we've done a lot this year. I've just been in the in the bunker where everything's happening, and a, a bunch of full time uh, social media staffers are already there and cranking out Instagrams and Twitter and Snapchat and all sorts of those things. Like, I don't know if there's any more core ones for you. We've added Giphy this year. Okay, it's a new new platform for us. Um, we've we've been doing a social media countdown to the championships, trying to combine. Uh, 
little insights into preparation. Um, so how are the lawns marked and how where do the strawberries come from? With remembering historic moments, and we thought rather than do historic moments in the classic way, why don't we do some animations um, of of classic moments? So today's, for example, is uh, Serena Williams balancing the trophy on her head from last year, which we've done as a, as a gif. Um, so it's quite fun, and it's just a, another way to celebrate Wimbledon's traditions just in a slightly different way. And you think that, I guess, tradition can be can be conveyed through gifts, because that's a very non-traditional way to talk about tradition, to, uh, to express tradition. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing I'm most proud of when you, when you go back to talking about the awards, is that we've shown that you can celebrate tradition and stay true to your tradition in a, in a very uh, Gen Z, Gen X, millennial, whatever you want to call it, yeah. in that kind of way. And we haven't lost sight of, of who we are, of what Wimbledon is and what the brand stands for, but hopefully we're adapting it, but keeping its authenticity um, in this very fast-changing consumer landscape that we're in. So what are some of the things on the app or on the website or elsewhere that people will notice that might be different or new for 2016 from Wimbledon? So the app, um, we've we've always been very focused on this idea of creating an experience for the people who can't come to Wimbledon. I'm sure I talked last time about yeah. creating the next best thing to being here. Um, what we've tried to do this year is actually create an experience for the people coming as well. So anybody downloading the app will be asked a series of questions. Yeah. You know, are you coming to Wimbledon? Have you been here before? Um, which allows us just to send them information about things that they might not know. So they might not know that the hill is a massive feature of Wimbledon and that you should eat strawberries. <laughs> Whereas somebody coming here for 10 years in a row would, would know all of those things. Um, so it helps uh, guide people on what they should do before they come. Key pieces of information. Have you thought about how you're going to get here? Do you know what, you're, uh, what you can bring, what you can't bring? No one likes to turn up and have their water bottle removed. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's trying to help out. the French Open. There you go. On day eight. It had been legal the first seven days. On day eight, they decided their water bottle was a threat. Uh, <laughs> it was confiscated. I won't comment on that. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's part of it. And then the second part of it is trying to encourage people to capture the experiences that they have when they're here. Yeah. Um, and basically go around and, and check off their own personal Wimbledon bucket list. So do you go to the hill? Do you have a picture with Fred Perry? Do you go and shake hands with a steward? All these sort of iconic, slightly quirky things that we have here. And then what we do is stitch together the, your pictures of those things into a little video oh, that wow. you can then share on social media um, with your friends and family and say, look, this is the lovely day I had at Wimbledon. So we've called it you know, creating your own Wimbledon story, um, some shameless uh, borrowing from, from Snapchat there. But um, a slightly different thing in a, in a way of, of, of really encouraging people to celebrate their visit. Um, the other thing that's new is we've built an Apple TV app. Okay. So, Ooh, um, yeah. Cool. So we're thinking about uh, people at home uh, using their TV screen. You have to watch it live. You can watch live at Wimbledon, which okay. is our channel. Right. But you can also listen to the radio and you can also have all of our live scores. So the idea is it's not just something that you sit there watching. Oh, that'd be great just to have. If you were like working in an office, background. yeah, having just the, the score tiles up there would be, would be huge. Exactly. And, and you know, TVs are so good now. And we've got all this wonderful video content. And who wants to look at it on a tiny screen? I mean, yes, you can. But we've also wanted to do something yeah. for, for big screens. So there's that. Um, and then from a social perspective, there's just there's a lot more stuff. I mean, we've we've developed custom a custom Facebook frame for people to celebrate Wimbledon. Uh, Twitter emojis will be back. Um, emojis for hashtag Wimbledon, hashtag the queue, and hashtag the world, uh, the hill even. Um, 
There's uh, four live stories with Snapchat. We've got some new uh, filters that we've been working with them on. Um, the, thing, the list goes on. <laughs> that's the thing. You work pretty closely with these with these companies. It's not just that Wimbledon wants to be on Snapchat. It's that Snapchat wants to have Wimbledon. And it's, it's a, I guess, a partnership people might not know how. I mean, you travel the world meeting with various executives from these partner companies, right? Yeah, we're, we're very lucky um, that these, um, you know, I guess, big brands really uh, want to work with Wimbledon and want to use us as a showcase. And it's so important to us that they do. And we're very you know, proud or honoured um, that even in this particular congested summer of sport, yeah. when you've got the Euros going on right now, you've got the Olympics coming up, the, those brands are still putting you know, investment on their side into working with us. That was actually going to be one of my next questions. We were just in the bunker and the TVs are on Portugal, Hungary, which is on as recording this, uh, and Olympics coming up. Is that, how much does that crowded summer, as you call it, influence what you do? Does it make it tougher? you have to work in a different way or do you just have to accept that there might be some divided attention especially I guess as long as England's in the Euros and things like that yeah I mean traditionally every other year when we go head-to-head with football we have World Cup every four years Euros every four years um, we see uh, the casual sports fan turning their attention to the football rather than the tennis yeah um, and what we've what we've really thought about this year is it's a bit of a change in mindset and I think it's a change in mindset not just for us but just generally with the amount of content that's out there the amount of platforms that people have is you're not an all or nothing you're not only a football fan and you're not only a Wimbledon fan I mean some people might be but there's a huge amount of crossover yeah and so rather than sort of battening down the hatches and thinking oh well let's just hope we'll be all right with football on We've tried to embrace it, and we've actually been talking to UEFA about creating content that cross-promotes between both events. Um, we're going to do a bit of a, a UGC challenge um, uh, set to, to Wimbledon fans, to some of the talent here, to some of the players, um, which is football-inspired. So you'll see that coming out um, on Monday, okay. from Monday. Um, and... It's it's you know acknowledging the fact that that this great event is going on and there's a great event going on here and UEFA are very receptive to that. They've actually got some tennis players as ambassadors for some of the teams. Hmm. And Jeska Radwanska is the uh, Poland ambassador okay. for the Polish team. Uh, Goran Ivanišević has done some stuff with them for Croatia. So um, they're doing it. We should do too. And um, that's that's a sort of concept that we're trying to take forward on on an ongoing basis. We've been talking to the NFL about what we can do, the NBA. Um, it, it, it doesn't just uh, just stop here this summer. Yeah, I guess on, you mentioned those two American leagues. I saw something a report that you're doing something on Twitter with celebrities, American celebrities tweeting at Wimbledon. You say anything about that? That partnership or that plan? Yeah. So one of the other things that we've been working on over the past twelve months is thinking about how do we um, generate a better understanding of Wimbledon around the world. Okay. We're very lucky that Wimbledon's very well known, mm-hmm. but do people in South America or in China or Asia really understand what does what is the hill or Hemmen Hill? Yeah. What does playing in whites mean? What does the grass mean? And so um, we've, we've uh, been working on creating some content that really explains that. There's, and there's two parts to it. One is in pursuit of greatness. And um, some of your listeners might have seen some of the content we've been putting out on our social channels. Um, there's a lovely video um, called The List, which basically describes how we go about preparing for each tournament. And we literally write this long list of things that we want to improve and do better, and we go about doing it. Um, 
And then the second part of that is called Wimbledon Weekend. Okay. And Wimbledon Weekend is really uh, about trying to drive interest in the finals weekend. Um, this year targeted to the US, but it, it, hopefully it will evolve and grow into Asia and South America. Um, and recognising that for someone who's never watched Wimbledon before, asking them to give up 13 days or two weeks of their life to watch a tennis tournament is, is a big ask. Yeah. So we want to, and this is you know unashamedly inspired by what the NFL have done with the Super Bowl in terms of extending the window, how can we bring people into the finals weekend? So we've created a series of little content um, pieces. It's tongue-in-cheek. It's poking fun at our Britishness. <laughs> one of them's called The Apology, for example, so you can guess where that one's going. And it's things like, you know, if you were celebrating the Wimbledon weekend, then you must make sure that you open your champagne bottle in a certain way because it would be um, frightfully rude to pour, champ- to pour champagne over your guests. You know, the correct quantities of cream to strawberries that kind of stuff naturally and that's where um the work with the influencers has come in so the influencers will be helping to share some of this content um it's not us saying oh you know kim kardashian will you tweet about wimbledon it's it's much more targeted than that i think kim kardashian to Wimbledon would be fine she's been to she's never been here i don't think but she's she's been been to the u.s open definitely she's a serena fan she and Serena are buddies so I was looking forward to Kim Kardashian tweeting about Wimbledon I was just <laughs> I just imagined her saying like what a great win for you know uh, Ramirez Hidalgo on court 18 <laughs> hashtag I don't know <laughs> Kardashian life I don't know yeah but, but it's it's about it's the same old, same thing I was saying before about the, the you know, social is that we can we can do some stuff with, with Twitter influencers in a way that is still respectful of the brand okay. and done in the right in the Wimbledon way and that is so important to us and I think that's what that is what people appreciate and recognize and i think people should appreciate and recognize you for all these wonderful things you've done for wimbledon here it's we'll a leave big, it big old team effort yeah well we'll leave it there and kick back to a year ago and walk around the place a bit thank you very much i'm extremely chuffed to use a british word to be joined here by alex willis alexandra willis head of digital and content for wimbledon hi alex hello ben We're very excited for this Wimbledon adventure thing we're about to do here. But in the meantime, let's just get to know where we are now, the launching pad of our great expedition. The bunker, Wimbledon.com, this is the nerve center of everything. Yes, we are down in a fairly nondescript room in the bowels of the broadcast center at Wimbledon. Um, affectionately known as the bunker because it doesn't have a lot of air. It doesn't have a lot of light either, but it becomes our home for about three weeks, so the week of qualifying plus the two weeks of the championships. And it's, uh, yeah, it's where everything we produce here at Wimbledon comes from. I like that phone ringing gives it a lot of... It's a fizzing, buzzing place. It's <laughs> tremendous. Uh, so, yeah, so you have been working at Wimbledon. Let's learn a little bit about you before you show us around the place. You have been... Thank you very you much. You just silence the phone. There you go. This is how important NCR is, that we get to silence Wimbledon phones. That's pretty cool. That's a, that's a landmark moment for us, I feel like. So you have been at Wimbledon for a number of years now. Talk about how where you were before and how you came here and what sort of stuff it is you do at Wimbledon. Sure. Um, I first started working at Wimbledon uh, four years ago. Um, this is actually my eighth championships here um, as a someone accredited you know, with a credential. Yeah. Um, and I started life working for a tennis magazine called Ace Magazine, for those of you out there who might have heard of it. Um, it was uh, British Tennis's answer to Tennis Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, the very celebrated US publication. 
Um, and uh, I worked there for three years. Then I went freelance for a while. I wrote for a few newspapers, wrote for uh, Australian Open, Grand Slam website. Yeah. Um, and then uh, got a phone call to say that Wimbledon's uh, web editor was leaving. And could I possibly come in on a sort of part-time basis and write some stuff for the website? So I thought, well, yes, please. <laughs> like any freelancer, never say yeah. no to anything. Um, so I did. Um, and I started working here. That was in 2000 and... Uh, oh, dear. 2011. Yeah. It was, yes. And uh, not long after that, I also got invited to do a job at the Telegraph newspaper in, in London. So I did that, and I did the Wimbledon job at the same time. I don't advise anyone to do two jobs at once. <laughs> yeah. um, and kind of at the end of that period, which went on for about 10 months, I actually got invited to have a full-time job here at Wimbledon looking after all the digital, which was not a job that previously existed. So before you show us around your sort of, your, your, your layer here, your not layer, your, your, your turf, your, your championship grounds, so the Green Style Guy, there's all sorts of appropriately capitalized terms I can use to describe this place. What is it like working at Wimbledon every day? Because you're not obviously in this room most of the time, you're somewhere else. But No, we're, we're in the office building, which is just yeah. the other side of the grounds where the museum is for yeah. anyone that's been. But um, the number one question I ever get asked by anyone when I say I work at Wimbledon is, well, what do you do for 50 weeks of the year? Yeah. And I think people don't necessarily appreciate that um, the staff here do work here all year round, and this is a living, breathing place. It doesn't just kind of shut up shop and, and disappear. Um, so, I mean, how would I describe it? It's, it's a privilege. It really is. Um, it is a, a unbelievable brand to work for in many ways, especially in the digital space, because we are trying to blend this traditional stuffy eccentric image with innovation and you know in the social media world which grows so fast um, and then in a content side and digital and everything and we really have the the bandwidth to do that and the buy-in to do that because people here at Wimbledon see it as being very important to helping sell the message of Wimbledon and and sell the brand not to to sell it to sell tickets but to encourage people to believe in Wimbledon and that's important that they get it that they really value this side of the operation because I don't know that all tournaments are the best way I don't think anybody has the sort of full-time dedicated I don't know, do you have opposite numbers at other tournaments who are as on it as you are all the time? So I'm not sure. I do have opposite numbers. Um, I mean, the, the difference with the other slams is that they're also running the governing body. Right, yeah. So um, their teams are mu- much, much bigger than um, our year-round team here is essentially me from a digital content perspective, yeah. plus a little bit of, of freelance help, um, whereas the other slams have marketing teams, you know, big teams. Um but the, the big difference from, from their side is that they have these um, revenue-generating objectives with digital. So they are either selling tickets off their websites or they're doing very, you know, sort of uh, more commercial activations with their partners, whereas here, Wimbledon is the hero. Yeah. Um, we do have commercial partnerships, but it's all about making Wimbledon the hero and it's that partner in, a, in association with us. So to your point, we're incredibly lucky, and 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 I think um, the club and and our kind of higher ups deserve credit for that because they do they do get that. Is it as formal as it seems year round? Is it everyone always in suits and everything and being proper all the time? 
it, it is a very yeah. proper place. Um, we do have a smart dress code. Mm. Um, when I first started working here, I did get told to smarten up my image, uh, <laughs> which was for, for, a, for a journalist who was used to wearing jeans and whatnot, and I thought I was a relatively smart journalist. But Journalists no. are pretty schlubby as a people. Yeah, that was definitely a wake-up call. The other was arriving here before 9am every morning. Oof. That was also uh, a challenge to me. Um, but, you know, I adapted. Um, but it, it is a formal place. Things are done in, in the right way. Um, for example, we're going to go on a little tour around, but yeah. where the trophies are housed is in the kind of entrance to the clubhouse. That's a members-only area traditionally. Um, we do have these traditions. But I think you can obsess about the traditions too much and you can lose sight of the, the bigger brand in obsessing about the traditions, but they are at the heart of it. So yeah. you have to respect them at the same traditions time. Traditions are the brand. Totally. Words, yeah. But but I but not to, to re emphasize it too much, it is this blend of tradition but in an innovative way. So um, as I'm sure you guys have covered before uh, or maybe you will come on to, the new facilities here um, are, that they've built for the players, for media are really you know, very impressive, but they're still absolutely in a Wimbledon way. So you'll see when you're in the media restaurant that there are there's planting, there are flowers yeah. growing out of kind of shelves. <laughs> um, I mean, what, what, what other place would you go in the world where they try and put flowers inside buildings? It's, um, it's absolutely about that attention to detail and that quality. Very nice. So shall we get moving? Let's get moving. We'll leave the bunker. We'll get some air. All right. And off we go. We're outside, folks. We don't do a lot on No Challenge Demanding outdoors, so this is pretty adventurous for us. We're emerging from the bunker here. Staircase awaits. So when do you move to the bunker? How many month, weeks of the year are you in here? Just during the, these three weeks? Yeah, we move to the bunker usually. Um, our kind of content build-up really starts once Roland Garros is finished. Okay. We try, you know, out of respect to the other Grand Slams, we, we cover their event, but we, for example, we didn't want to launch the new Wimbledon.com during Roland Garros, we sure. wanted to wait till afterwards. We've obviously had an extra week this year. Yeah, um, Does that changed things much. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was um, it was nice to have a little bit more time, um, just to not feel rushed. I think two weeks is, is difficult to build momentum, but also get the timing right. Um, yeah. You know, we we want to be creating content that people are interested in, and if you're shoving at, at people too early, then you know they don't care. They're not yeah, bothered. Exactly. So, um, we're just walking up now past uh, Court 14, which is A newly back. renovated court. Yeah, these are 14 and 15 were the ones under construction last year, right? That's absolutely right, yeah. So that's back. That now has a, a basement underneath it which houses all the photographers ah. and uh, also the new media restaurant. And Court 15 has got all the ball boys and girls underneath it. Tremendous. It sound um, like they're buried there, but no, they're, 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 they're doing okay. <laughs> no, well, I mean, the media have commented about how light the space is underneath there. So. We're now passing court 18, and the plaque, the famous plaque, the longest match, was played on court 18, number 18 court, the style guide, of course, uh, June 22nd through 24th, 2010. John Isner of the USA beating Nicolas Mahout of France. Scoreline yep. ending in 70-68. Five years this, ago, yeah, that match. Were you here when the plaque went up? Were you already working with I them? I was, then? yes, yeah. yes, I was. Um, it's and there was some discussion about whether or not to do the plaque, yeah? There was. No, no, there was always going to be a plaque. There was discussion about whether there should be one for the golden set. Yes, the uh, Shvedova, yeah. Um, I think it was felt that that would be, I mean... Cruel this to was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was celebrating an extraordinary moment. Yeah. You don't necessarily want to celebrate 
a negative moment. Yeah, it could be negative for her for um, sure. What court was that on? Do you know? Rani uh, Shvedova? Four or five. Yeah, I one think. of the field courts, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So it's also harder to put a plaque there, maybe. The outside courts. Yes. Style guy. The outside courts, yes. Of course. So here's court 18. Yelena Yankovic once complained that she had to take a helicopter to this court. It's pretty erroneous because it's actually really close to center court. I mean, there's, there's less than 100 meters between 18 and center, but we do enjoy JJ's yeah. flair for the dramatic. And we're now, I hear rustling water on a fountain. It's usually not this quiet, I guess, during the tournament, so you can't well, usually hear it. This is what I was going to say is where we're walking now is this space up towards the hill. And um, during the championships, it is knee deep in people. Yeah. Um, and what, what you're seeing now is what we get to see every day. And when I talk about being here, being a privilege that you sometimes can forget, you know, we experience this on a daily basis. Yeah. And you're just looking at the hill as we've got blue sky, we've yeah. got an aeroplane in the background. So, yeah. um, let's, let's talk about the hill. The hill is, I think, became a pretty iconic part of Wimbledon lore. I think especially even just from watching it on TV. They, they show the hill quite a bit whenever Henman and now Murray were playing. They... You see people picnicking out there. You see Pam Shriver uh, interviewing fans of various levels of intoxication, and it's all tremendous. Um, this hill, it's, I mean, it's not as big, I think, maybe as it looks on TV, or it's more stair-steppy. I don't know. It, maybe, maybe it is the right size. But I remember thinking when I first saw it, like, oh, it's kind of smaller than I thought. I thought it was a mountain that it was built up, but it's just it's a hill. Do you know the story of how the hill came to be? I do not. So to the right of the hill is obviously number one court. And yes. when they built number one court, they had to dig a big hole ah. to put the court in. So they put all the hole, all the earth they dug up next to it. Yeah. And hence the hill was born. And they actually had to get special permission to bring in a fire engine to water the grass on the hill to keep it alive until it had kind of bedded in. Yeah. Um, so that, that is what we see now. But what's, what's interesting for us is that most people who watch Wimbledon on TV probably only see centre court. Yeah. And they see the Royal Box and they get that impression of Wimbledon. And what we're trying to do with all our different bits of content, you know, be it uh, Periscope or Vine or, or the website imagery that we put up, is show off the different bits that make Wimbledon what it is. All these different things. And the hill is absolutely one of those. So. Is that new, that seating up there? No, that's always there. Oh, yeah. So there's a, there's a couple few rows of seating, like it, like it would be for a court, just above the hill. Mm-hmm. Okay, I hadn't noticed yeah. that before. It's for... Um, uh, mobility impaired people. Ah, oh, there we go. Yes, we like we do like them. Yes. Um, all right, so that's the hill. Now we're looking out on the grounds. We did a 180 here for those of you playing along at home with your Wimbledon maps. And yes, we're walking... and the iPad app. Yes, and the iPad app. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about the apps briefly while we sort of backtrack a bit. You also work sure. on the apps, designing the apps yes. for things. We have a, we have an odd segue into your segment when we recorded it last night. That's about apps somewhat. So let's talk about the app. What goes into making the Wimbledon app and how is that uh, a vital part of, you know, sports branding in 2015? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I think one thing to say is that um, four years ago when I first started working here, and by the way, just to be totally upfront, it, you might get the impression I think that we're perfect. No. We're absolutely not perfect. We've got a lot still to do and a long way to go, but we feel like we've started going in the right direction. And um, Four years ago, we had a website that looked exactly the same as the other four Grand Slams. Right. And until two years ago, or last year, when we launched the new Wimbledon app, we had an app that looked the same as the four Grand Slams. Yeah. It had the same back end, just different colour scheme. And so what we wanted to do was bring you that visual experience that it's very beautiful, but also make it very easy to use and, most importantly, make it personalisable. Because certainly, um, I think people will 
We're making a left. We're making a left. We're going down the rose arbor now. Ooh. Which is the flowers everywhere. The, uh, and more flowers that have not, not yet been hung. Hanging baskets. What are the, what kind of flowers are those? Do you know? Uh, I think they're peonies. Oh, peonies. Very yes. nice. They have, they have the flowers on the platform at Southfield Station this they year. They do, they yes. They look very nice. I can talk about that Classing well, up the like. tube, yeah. Talk about whatever you want. Um, we finish the app and we'll I'll get to the flowers. I'll finish the app. <laughs> so, uh, certainly, when I go to an event and I want to find out how someone's getting on, and especially on a small screen, you could just find you're scrolling for hours and hours and hours to find no. the player that you're interested in, if you're not quite so savvy with technology as you probably are, Ben. Oh, thank you. Um, so, we basically wanted to give people the opportunity to favourite their... Players, okay. but not just players, countries as well. Oh, say you want to know how all the Spanish are doing, and also events. So say you were only interested in singles and you didn't really care about doubles. Yeah. Um, Which I will say is a common thing, a common problem, just as someone who covers almost only singles, having the doubles and later the juniors sort of clogging up the scoreboard. It can be hard to find the matches that matter sometimes yeah. to what we're writing about. Yeah. So that, so that was um, the, the kind of crux of the app, to be this... Uh, very easy to dip in and dip out on the go companion because we believe that's what an app should be. Yeah. Um, one thing we've put in this year, which I personally matters to me because I thought I think it's a good thing to do, is that when you lose your network connectivity, the app doesn't just die. Oh, good. So it, it basically freezes um, on what you were last looking at. So you could still continue to go um, in all through all the news. You could look through all the results. You could look through the draws. It's only the live, live elements um, that wouldn't refresh until right. you regain connectivity. But I, I just felt it wasn't a very good experience for someone using the app. You're looking at something and suddenly off it turns. And it's a, it's, this is a year-round thing for you, I think it's clear. I mean, obviously, you're talking about working at Wimbledon year-round. I mean, the app development, website development, it's not just something that, oh, French Open just ended, let's web together an app and a website. Absolutely not. I mean, we started, we decided uh, probably the day the tournament finished last year, we were going to build a new website for the next year. And so we started the planning for that in August. Uh, we had our first meetings um, in September about it, and design started in October. So mm. it really is um, that kind of process. So let's we'll talk about where we are now before we get to the, We'll go back to the flowers later, but right now we're just walking. somewhere very exciting. We're about to walk up into... Centre Court. Centre Court. This is the thing. This yeah. is it. This Sh- is shall the, we walk? Uh, yeah, let's walk. Oh. This is the take a breath moment and, and we we're ridiculously lucky i mean i could walk out here and look at this every day it's um we're just walking up the steps we're at the uh opposite end to the royal box yes. near the press seats the grass is tented at the moment right now so you can't totally see it i will say wimbledon has the best press seats of any of the grand slams i think in terms of quantity of having the whole section being really close to the close court i guess we did lose these rows i want to say yeah, they did move a couple yeah. back. Um, one so thing f- that was quite funny was that when the roof was put on, they redid all the seats inside Centre Court. And they said to the members of the media, do you want new seats? And the media sort of proudly said, no, 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 we'll keep our wooden benches. <laughs> and then, of course, they saw the nice new seats and thought, oh, I wish we'd asked for new seats. Yeah. But we're under the roof, it's slightly closed. Um, it's interesting, it's nice it's interesting that the roof is... Um, this is a little detail. We're standing on the north end of the stadium, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So usually the roof is over the south end during play because it's shading the royal box. The royal box gets shade that not everyone else always gets. It's a privilege of being royal <laughs> and boxed. Yeah, I think it's also um, it's good for the roof to move it around a bit. Yeah. What, what's funny is the number of times I'll come out here and I'll take a picture for 
put on Facebook or Twitter and, and people will tell me, that's not centre court, you're lying to us because they can't see the roof. <laughs> um, but it's just the roof happens to be at the other end of the yeah. court. It's interesting, the roof, because in Halle, where I would just want to say have a roof too, it's obviously a much smaller stadium, um, but the roof cuts kind of half on each end and they push together in the middle. And here the roof is a one sort of thing that can move all the way to one end, all the way to the other. It's not anchored yep. really anywhere. So that's quite, the, quite the innovation. And the number one roof will be the same. Oh, okay. Yeah. When is that getting done? So that the work, building work for that begins after this year's championships, yeah. um, and it will be complete by 2019. So let's talk a little bit about what we see at Centre Court. The Royal Box opposite us is interesting because they have their own separate entrance into the stadium. Basically, you can only get to, into the Royal Box from inside the clubhouse, Yes. and it's sort of fenced or you know, walled off inside there. And so they're actually going to build one of those, I heard, at Indian Wells. They want to have their own Royal Box or a special oh, really? VIP section that's modeled off the Royal Box anyway. I don't, know, I don't know when that's going to happen. It's one of Uncle Larry's dreams for Indian Wells. Um, yeah, so, but it's been a big, big smash. And you see people, I think they have tea every day. So I think at some point, middle of the day, you see everybody leave the Royal Box. At some point, yes. it gets empty and it comes back out and everyone's all happy and full of tea and the delicious strawberries and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, the Royal Box is seen as... Um you know, one of a very privileged invites um, in sport, really. Oh, yeah. um, and the guests range from royalty, as you've mentioned, but also to former Olympians, to people who've, you know, played a particular service in the sport. Um, Some celebrities, you see the odd, yeah, you, you do. know, uh, Bradley Cooper. Yeah, I think he's I think he's back this year, I believe. Oh, super. Um, yeah, every day we get the list of notables in the Royal Box, and sometimes you haven't heard of any of them, and sometimes it's, well, especially days when it's like, you know, silver medalist cyclists that we wouldn't have heard of necessarily from mm-hmm. British sports lore and then other days like the finals days usually it's massively packed with everybody and you're like wow them and them and them mm-hmm. I saw the Beckhams strolling around at some point when I was up yes. on the, the lawn they're all here and yeah it's a great place for famous people watching if you want to see Will and Kate and any of that and then just to the left from where we're looking of the world box is the players mm-hmm. box which I think got reconfigured at some point to keep them a little bit more separate I want to say that aisle I know it's gotten redesigned at some point I guess maybe when the new scoreboards got put in or something mm-hmm. they also the thing that happened last year which received a bit of coverage was putting in this little gate at the end which we can actually see is open um for oh, the to players, the players to walk up, up to, to to go and uh, um Tonight celebrate with their over. teams yeah the the, the nerve-wracking experience of rafa nadal walking across the roof of one of the commentary boxes to uh shake the hand of king carlos of spain who's here <laughs> watching him and everyone thinking god what if he uh, if falls off the roof that would not um, be ideal. Yeah. But it is, I don't know. I mean, Ben, you've obviously seen all the four Grand Slam yeah. centre courts. It is a, I, I feel like um, centre court is sim- more similar to Rod Laver in, yeah, its, I agree. in its sort of atmosphere. Well, it's one style. tier. There's not like multiple tiers hanging off of it, which I enjoy. And it does feel very cozy. It's actually a lot like Rod Laver. I mean, I, I'm guessing Rod Laver was built, was designed in some way mm-hmm. off of centre court, but it does have that sort of same cozy sloping way it gets a little bit less vertical maybe than rod laver is mm-hmm. and it, the seats come down lower because in rod laver there's that sort of wall that goes all the way around the court oh that's because true, they turn yeah. it into like a swimming pool at some other point in the year yeah. um so it's a little bit different than that um but yeah i like yeah. it quite a bit so it's it, 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 very green it is very green all the seats are green uh, we can't see from where we are the famous doors i feel like on in wimbledon especially the way it's covered on tv and in, in on nbc which is what i watched growing up uh in the u.s they you know zoom in on the on the wooden doors and everything and usually you can see them here but i guess the tenting is sort of yeah we'll walk around and we'll walk around and see that from the clubhouse on the other side oh boy yes. we're about to go real behind the scenes 
So let's talk about the flowers. The flowers. Oh, yes. So one of the things that we've also done recently, and it's not so much my responsibility, but in my kind of team, uh, is to... There used to be a view that your Wimbledon experience began when you walked through the gates. Yeah. Um, and now... Which is we, a reasonable... That's how it works for most sporting events. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But what we've tried to do is actually have that experience begin as soon as you get off the tube. So we're running this campaign, and we've been doing it on social media as well, um, which we've done for the past couple of years, which is all around Wimbledon awaits. So the idea that as soon as you get off the tube, you get this excitement. Yeah. I'm nearly there. I'm nearly at Wimbledon. And to be very honest, it's something that we picked up on from the London Olympics. Okay. They were very good at that kind of journey just, just before you got there. Yeah. So at Southfields and Wimbledon Station, you'll see the Wimbledon awaits um, kind of branding um, and there are hanging baskets, the flowers, mm-hmm. all the way yep. up the road. There are Wimbledon flags in the village. Yeah, the purple and green banners. Purple and green see, flags, yeah. yeah. And um, it's just, I and mean, the same in the queue. So it's just trying to, you know, give people that, that start to their day. And one of the things we're doing from a digital perspective is actually to use iBeacons. And I don't know how much you get into I tech beacons. geek chat. Go for it. So iBeacons are, you know, sort of little sensor. And if you have the Wimbledon app and you walk past an iBeacon at Southfields or Wimbledon Station... Um, you will get a message just saying, welcome to Wimbledon. Oh, wow. Um, so that's what we're trying to Wimbledon do. Wimbledon is watching you guys. Well, no, but it's not about selling. Okay. Um, a lot of people use this technology. So, you know, uh, at other events, you might walk past a cafe and it'll be like, 50% off Coke. Yeah. Uh, Coca-Cola. And, um, <laughs> uh, and that's not absolutely not what we're trying to do at right. all. It's just to give them the start to their their day. Now, you mentioned learning from the Olympics, and one thing that you do, which is unique among tennis people, at least from people who I know relatively well, is you travel a lot. You do all sorts of things. You went to the Masters in Augusta. Mm -hmm. You went, uh, you're going, you're always off in Singapore, somewhere, learning from other sports, and it seems like Wimbledon really sees itself as sort of, I guess, a, a world player, but also like a world student, and that you guys really do pay a lot of attention to what everybody else does I guess you can talk about yeah I mean I think there is um an acceptance here and and an understanding and and maybe acceptance is the wrong word but actually a drive that if you want to be the best and there is no question that Wimbledon wants to be the best not just of the four slams but among annual sporting events and then not just among annual sporting events but among rights holders and and general events I mean um, the Chelsea Flower Show is an event that we often get compared to, even though it's nothing to do with tennis, but it's a, no. you know, a very popular event. You have to see what they're doing. Yeah. And especially in a technology world where um, you know, things like Wi-Fi are a very hot topic. Um, do you have apps, Wi-Fi on the grounds here this year? No? We don't have Wi-Fi, no. I mean, it's, it, that is an evolving thing, and that's something that we, we need to do at some point. But the geography of this site is bizarre. Um, anyone who's been here will know that it's possible for it to be raining at one end and sunny at the other. And so the, the topography pay, yeah. pays havoc with the mobile signal. So what we've done is actually try and boost the mobile signal okay. this year um, quite significantly by some distance. And in fact, I did see that Courtney, your co-host of this podcast, remarked on Hi, the Courtney. fact... Hi, Courtney. Hello, Courtney. Um, remarked on the fact that we had uh, issued a, a notice about which... Um, phone operators the signal had been yeah. boosted in and saying you know try not to use these ones um but you know that will come but i mean we, you know we're very lucky to be able to travel and go and see what other people do but arguably you know you can learn so much by doing so and i mean augusta 
for us, a lot of our committee members are members of Augusta and go okay. there. And, and if they say to us, well, why aren't we like Augusta? And it's hard to kind of challenge that if you don't really know what Augusta's like. So it's a privilege, again, yeah. um, but one that I think we believe is worthwhile. How many flights did you take last year? You took some insane number of flights last year. Well, I will qualify that because I was... They weren't all for work. No, they weren't all for work. I did. I was very lucky. I went with my family to South America, which involves a lot of flying. Yeah. Um, but I took around 37 or so flights. Wow. Yeah. I, took, I feel like I take a lot. I feel like I was under... 30 last year. I remember, remember saying my number being like, wow, that was a lot. That's my 28th and final foot. And you're like, ha, I'm on 37. I was like, oh, Willis wins again. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not competitive, I promise. So we have the bus here. We're, we're outside the other side of center court now, which is, has the balcony. I guess it's the sort of famous thing on here where the champion comes out and waves to the masses after it's the singles one. finals. Oh, yes, the balcony so this on this side. This balcony. Okay. This is the south, the east. So the sort of diagonal facing is. balcony, yeah. yeah. So faces onto the and that's one of those um, sort of mini Southwest, sorry, I was wrong. These mini kind of traditions that has evolved recently that we've tried to consciously capture. And I think especially in 2013 when Andy Murray won, the groundswell of support in this outside area. I first remember seeing it when the Queen came to Wimbledon. Mm. It was amazing. The people literally lined all the tarmac. People were kind of, you know cramming into balconies to see her yeah um and then when murray won this area around here was um was just packed and again it's it is one of those uh, spaces that it's now completely empty and when it's full you can't imagine it being empty and when yeah. it's empty you, you can't, can't imagine, imagine it, it being yeah. full which is kind of how we feel most of the year to be honest yeah that's fair and let's see just orient orient ourselves here so the southwest area sort of faces into the new court three which replaced old graveyard court two mm-hmm. and it's a ticketed stadium there <laughs> we're just uh, commenting on the fact um that was our championships director so she's our tournament director walking past ah. and What's her um name? sarah clock ah. and uh, i didn't realize you had a female tournament director That's we do lovely. we do have a female tournament director um and uh today we did a piece of content which uh to give you a little sneak preview uh, we will be releasing next week um, on Wimbledon's platforms, um, which was Andy Murray on Henman Hill uh, with five eight-week-old puppies. I think and a bunch of ovaries just exploded, is the sound that you're hearing <laughs> in the distance. Um, well, we know that Andy is a dog lover, and um, we wanted to do something to highlight the work that the Met Police sniffer dogs do here at Wimbledon. Very mm. important role. Yeah. But also Andy is an um, ambassador for the World Wildlife Fund, he loves dogs. He loves dogs. So uh, we had him playing with uh, some puppies on the hill, trying to teach them tricks, which was pretty funny because they were just running around in circles yeah, and I everyone was catching them. I saw. I was. I came here at the end of that, and like Kim was there and saying that Maggie would, Maggie and Rusty would have torn up the hill. They would not have been Wimbledon ready canines. But uh, yeah, it seems like he found a yeah. good match. Canine oh, match. It was really fun. I mean, watch this space. But Sarah was um, unfortunately in a very important committee meeting, oh, so no. missed it, and she's devastated she didn't get to see the puppies. <laughs> they were very cute. They were like small black ones. I saw black ones. Yeah, anyway, little, were... little black cocker spaniel puppies. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. Wimbledon, always the best, even <laughs> in puppies. Um, yeah, so these are the, you call these the what courts? Outside courts. Outside so courts. So this is, the, this southern, is the southern outside courts. And this feels a little bit like what Roehampton feels like, which is where I've been elsewhere this week is qualifying. Mm-hmm. Is that although you do have it paved in between, so it's not quite the same, but it's like a field. And this is where you really get a sense of the grass being the more organic surface, where you can walk mm-hmm. at the same level as the grass and just really sort of mingle about it, and it feels like you're on somebody's grand backyard lawn. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a saying that we have, we use internally. I don't think it's a brilliant um, 
sort of consumer proposition, but we call it tennis in an English garden. Mm -hmm. And it's that when you come to Wimbledon, you feel like you're in an English garden, and that's you know, hence the attention to all the flowers. Yeah. And, and you don't want to hide anything behind walls. Um, but one of the objectives of the master plan is actually to space these courts out a bit more. Okay. So at the moment, there are four They can be very crowded if there's... A, if there's interesting matches on both yeah. courts that it can, can be, be pretty tough to get through but I was having a chat with someone this morning you can walk down here you can sit on a bench and you can watch Bob Bryan one yeah. of the best doubles player in the world right in front of you yeah. um, but they are going to reduce it from four to three in the years to come mm. to give the courts a bit more, bit more space are they putting the new courts somewhere else? So, so they will go the other side of number one court oh okay so, so there will be three the new courts yeah, oh. on the other side that, that's the I mean this is we're talking 2019 beyond gotcha Always moving ahead, Wimbledon. Well, this is the thing. I mean, we're very lucky uh, that we can take a long-term view. Yeah. Because we know that um, we're, we're secure in, in the event that it's it will keep going. Yeah. Um, Wimbledon's not at risk of bankruptcy or, you know, irrelevance anytime soon. Wimbledon will stay with... I mean, it's a, it's a brand that's really a pillar. Yeah, but, I mean, I will say uh, we have to work at it. And actually, one of the reasons that digital and social is becoming very important to us is because it is our mouthpiece to the younger generation yeah. out there who maybe didn't grow up watching Wimbledon on NBC yeah. because they don't have a TV. And so actually if our way into them is via Snapchat, which we launched yesterday, uh -huh. um, yeah, Wimbledon is now on Snapchat. Very hip, apparently. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even hip enough for Snapchat. I don't no, nor Snapchat. am I. Yeah. No, I mean, no. I don't even know how to work it. I had no. to learn. It's hard. I think it's really non... I ranted about this on the podcast a few months ago. Okay. I, think, I think Snapchat is surprisingly not intuitive and just difficult. But it is what anyone but, but aged the, under 25 exactly. does. The kids you know, love it. Snapchat, WhatsApp. So we actually, in the apps, we have a WhatsApp share icon now. Ooh. So if someone wants to share you know, a photo of... You know, Novak Djokovic um, on a bicycle, which we shot today, or Rafa peeking over the back of the Rangi practice courts to see who was hitting behind him. We can do it on Snapchat, I and mean, that might be the right way, or they can share it to their friends from the app. So we did not talk. We did not go to Rangi on this tour, but let's talk very briefly about that before we go mm -hmm. inside. Um, Rangi is where on the grounds, and what is Rangi? So Rangi is uh, known as Rangi Park, and it is the area on the other side of Number One Court. Um, it's the practice courts, basically. Yeah. And the reason it is called Orangi Park, and actually the hill's official name is Orangi Terrace, mm. is because way back when the club originally bought the grounds, they couldn't afford to use them all. And so they leased the area in the north to the London New Zealand Rugby Club. Mm. And they called that area Orangi Park. And Orangi means cloud in the sky in Maori. Ah. And because it's very high up, when yeah. you walk to the top of it, you can actually see all the way into central London. You can see the, the shard and things like that. You can like see that. the shard, you can yeah. see Canary Wharf. So that is why it's called Orangi. But there's been a huge amount of work this year to redevelop the Orangi Pavilion, which is where all the players uh, go to practice to make the facilities there as nice as they are here. And that's not open to the public, right? That's not open to the public, no. Yeah. But, um, I mean, there's, they put in something like 10 ice baths and mm. stretching areas and... Uh, a little patch of, of grass out around the back, which is a mini version of Indian Wells's um, soccer uh, massive soccer lawn. Oh, yeah. nice. But it's just for stretching and warming uh, okay. up. And no, soccer's going to happen. But there's also, in the Millennium Building, they've put in an underground um, running warm-up track, okay. which is actually... Millennium Building is... It's the one uh, next to the press centre. Okay, sure. So it's called Millennium Building because it's in the shape of an M, if you look oh. at it from above. Okay. And it was built in the Millennium. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Sure. But uh, it's quite cool when you go down there. There is um, 
this uh, space that is painted green like a court, and it's the width of a court mm -hmm. for the, with the idea that players might be doing um, suicide yeah, sprints or whatever. Yeah, footwork drills and do. stuff. Yeah. Cool. So we are now outside these famous wooden doors. Another iconic -y thing. Say, please remove clay court shoes before entering the clubhouse. Not that anyone is wearing clay court shoes, I don't think, right now, but it's a nice thing to say. And private members only. And All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. This is it. This is the entrance to the club. We're outside. During the championships, you can't get anywhere near here, so we're, we're, uh, we're, we're going in just before we're, we're not allowed to. Yes. Just a point about clay, though. Very few people realise there are clay courts here. You do have here. clay courts, yeah. yeah. They're I all in the south. I want to say that Murray practiced here at some point before his clay swing. He did, yeah. And it went very well for him, so yes. good clay at Wimbledon. Yeah, it's green clay, mm -hmm. so it's the American style. Um, but and yeah. those are the south end, sort of Wimbledon, yes. the ground sort of come to a point at Church Road, mm -hmm. and that other road is called something. Somerset Road. Somerset Road, yeah, it comes to a sort of triangle point, mm -hmm. and so the clay courts are at the end there. Not really accessible during the championships, I don't think. No, that it's actually where all the hospitality marquees get gotcha. placed. Okay. But without harping on about the master plan... An idea is to open that area up completely to become um, a kind of public park plaza where people can go and sit okay. and watch the southern courts from behind ah. and move all the clay courts and all the hospitality to the other side of Somerset Road. That would make sense. Yeah. All right. Let's go in. Let's go inside. We're going inside. We're opening the wooden doors. I'm very excited. I feel underdressed. So, um, so we're passing the... Roles of honor here, the ladies and men's doubles. Mm -hmm. This is very exciting. And the famous quote the famous quote is ahead of us if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Wimbledon loves Almost that. as good as Rafa Nadal reciting it before the 2008 final. Oh, did he say Do you remember that? No. It was during uh, the, the 2008 final, was obviously rain delayed quite significantly. Yeah. And they, the BBC, kind of their, what they did, one of the ways of filling was to, uh, pre-roof obviously, was to play this kind of preview video. And they had Rafa reading out that uh, quote, which um, you can imagine was not quite how it's normally recited. It's tough English. I feel like it's, it was awkward for me to read it even now. So I can imagine that Rafa English, which we adore in its, all its quirks, was interesting. Yeah. We but see yes, photos so above of Kvitova. And Djokovic, mm -hmm. our reigning champions, so there are banners out on that aforementioned triangle point outside that say men's singles champion Novak Djokovic, women, ladies singles champion Petra Kvitova. So mm -hmm. they do like their winners here. Mm -hmm. And then up in front of us, oh, we're, we're, we're between the two famous wooden staircases, which you see get used on the broadcast quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and the roles of honor with the singles champions are right next to the doors to the court. Yeah, so you probably, when you would have seen this, is... Um, either when the player first comes down, so the yeah. cameras, the TV cameras are allowed to stand at the foot of the staircase, and the player comes down from the locker rooms, which are around the other side. Well, sometimes there. they follow them all the way down the hallway now. At the end, yeah. yeah. Okay. But at the beginning, they come down here, and gotcha. then they go yeah. out into the doors, but then when you see the champion come out at the end, you see their name having just been inscribed on that green Within board Within minutes, yeah. Mm -hmm. You want to look and at the board? Yeah. Let's, we walk over, board. let's yeah. look at the board of singles champions. I came in here um, quite by chance with Rod Laver. Ah. He, uh, I got a phone call saying, um, Rod Laver's just turned up at, at the gate. <laughs> and um, I was like, okay. And I had actually been very lucky. I'd, I'd interviewed him in San Diego um, just before Indian Wells last year. And he had come with a group of his friends from San Diego, um, having been on a cruise around the Nordics. Oh. And apparently they had said to him, Rod, Rod, please take us to Wimbledon. 
And obviously, as a member, he can come whenever he likes. Yeah. So he brought them in, and uh, we sat down here in front of this green board, and he took pictures, and he pointed out his name. And He's on he, there four times, four-time champion, 61, 62, 68, and 69. And 68 was the first open one. That's right, So that's yeah. when he, with the amateur rule, he had to stop in 62, I guess, when he turned pro, and mm-hmm. came back and won some more. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then the ladies is on the other side, and I think so. I remember Serena, you know, for being very proud of. I think it was probably when she got her twenty ten title, yeah. looking at the the row of Williamses there. Four in a row, yeah, and there were four in a row before, two thousand two thousand three. All Williams, one Sharapova, mm-hmm. Williams, Moresma, Williams, 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 Kvitova, Williams, Bartoli, mm-hmm. Kvitova, and men's obviously, a collection of Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, and the Andy Murray. Mm-hmm. So what was that like when Andy Murray won here? Because obviously you guys are impartial. But Andy Murray winning. I was here. That was my first Wimbledon that I covered as press. It was uh, pretty, pretty exciting times. Yeah, I mean, I think you made a very important point that we, probably because we're not the, the national governing body, we, we absolutely are impartial. Um, we are a British event, and therefore a British player doing well is, is fantastic. But, you know, we will always try to be balanced in our coverage. But... I think for me, having been to so many finals when he'd lost, yeah. it was just this utter sort of sense of disbelief. And um, during the championships, I, I watched pretty much no tennis at all. Um, I may, maybe make it to a game or two. Yeah. Um, and I made a conscious decision that I was going to go up into one of the commentary boxes on centre court where two members of my team were up there live blogging and live tweeting. And I was standing behind them. Um, and he, he began to, And I only made it up there, I think, the game he was about to serve for the match. Yeah. And then he saw the three match points and we were like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And then Djokovic comes back and saves all three, has break point, a break point again, and break point again. And then the last match point. And what was crazy is that in the commentary box, it's soundproofed, so you can't hear anything. You could just watch them play. Yeah. And there was suddenly this like roar from the crowd. You could hear through the glass as they erupted as he won. And the one thing I remember, there was this woman in the commentary box at the other end who just screamed, he did it! Um, which uh, was crazy. But, I mean, you know, an amazing moment in the tournament's history. Yeah, but, um, for sure. Yeah. You think he'll get... We didn't. We kind of did a C around the centre court. We didn't see the Fred Perry statue. But do you think Andy Murray will get a statue? Oh, someday? I think yeah, he definitely will. When he retires, yeah. um, the club have said that they would commemorate him in, in, in some way. Um, you think you'd ever give one to a non-Brit, like a Federer? Type or a Williams, someone who else who sets records. It is you look around the or the busts of all the female champions and I guess some of the men and the Fred Perry full statue, whatever. Very that good is question. that is one part where it feels like it has more of a British. Yeah, uh, tilt no, very to good it. question. I mean, I you know in in uh, Melbourne Park you've got the Aussies commemorated. Yeah. Same in uh, the US. So that's true. Probably not, but and I and French they have long lawn and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, but I do think there's a role to be played here especially because it's a members club and this idea of becoming a member. There is a role to be played here for former champions. Um, I mean, Tim Hemman, um, okay, he's a Brit, so he's a bad example, but he sits on our committee. Um, He's very involved in in the kind of day-to-day running of the club. He might be the chairman one day. Um, So I think there is definitely a role for members to play if they want to. It's encouraged. We're in the sort of clubhouse area right now, and I will say I was in here once last year doing a story about the... 
um, scheduling, having more women's matches on centre court. And I was mm-hmm. talking to... Richard Lewis. Richard. I was talking to the Richard Lewis. Chief executive yes. of Wimbledon. I was talking to Richard Lewis, the chief executive of Wimbledon, and uh, coming through here. And on the way out, I was, you know, I usually fairly dressy for most journalists here. I wear, like, khakis and button-down shirt, which is not much, but it's more They're than good most. Shoes. And lovely shoes, always. And um, on the way back, I was told, oh, you need a, a coat to be in the clubhouse during the tournament. So I guess mm-hmm. there's still sort of formalness to it. Even then, jacket and tie. Jacket yeah, and tie. Any yeah. time. Yeah. So um, sometimes we have guests who come in uh, here, and um, my boss uh, is allowed to invite them to dine in the members' restaurant, but they have to bring a jacket and tie. So we have a, a collection of ties that we keep. Okay. Um, not sure what you would do for women. Obviously, don't put on a tie, but yeah, um, yeah you do have to be. I'm just. Feeling, jeans, I'm feeling underdressed in my jeans right now. It's all. Yeah, yeah, I know. All we're, I'm we're letting you get away with well, it. Well, I appreciate but, all of you yeah. giving this to the. the listeners and all that and we'll finish maybe with the trophies yeah the trophies are here this big men's one is the challenge cup is that mm-hmm. what it's right that's right i yeah. saw that in the style guide i would never have known that before very good the, with a pineapple on top mm-hmm. which i appreciate pineapples mean hospitality usually mm-hmm. and symbols so i not exactly sure what's there but yeah you can see the engraving 2014 i don't see any other names on is that a new band maybe I don't uh, see any names before 2008, so maybe they must have put a new belt. Yeah. Oh, no, they're, oh, no, up, they're up, up, up on yeah, the up actual cup itself, not mm-hmm. on the base. Okay. Yeah. It's a nice trophy. Very And shiny. you know there are only two trophies. I did not know that. Explain. Mm. So um, there is this one here, mm-hmm. and there is one in the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are no more than that, so we're not quite like uh, the Champions League, of which there are about 25, apparently. Gotcha. Or there are many FA Cups. Um, not sure how many World Cups there are. And the engraving... No gets done within minutes mm-hmm. also just yes. like the, the thing so you see I think when the women's final last year when they had the closed route before the trophy ceremony was about to start to rain then mm-hmm. and Jeannie Bouchard and Kudova went and waited in the engraver's room and while it was being engraved mm-hmm. so that's yeah. pretty cool yeah the guy it's an amazing story actually um, Roman who's Polish drives every year in his car all the way from Poland to Wimbledon with the um, help of a boat I hope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. with the help of a boat with the help of a boat but he doesn't yeah. fly yeah. and he's in his 70s and uh, he, uh, yeah, he, he is the man who engraves the trophies. And the other one is the women's trophy across the way. Mm-hmm. Very pretty trophy, the Venus rosewater dish. Mm-hmm. It's hoisted. Yeah. Made in the uh, same place, I believe, as uh, the Birmingham trophy in, 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 a, in a, an area called the Jewelry Quarter in Birmingham. Oh, so the, German, the Birmingham trophy is sort of like a gravy boat looking yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. I think you guys got the better deal. <laughs> I gotta say. <laughs> so, yeah. It's a, it's a, definitely has an aura in here, I think. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if you... There's a sword up there, um, ceremony. A sword? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. What's that sword doing there? That was presented, I think, on the occasion of the Silver Jubilee, maybe? Okay. Um, because the Queen is the patron of the club. Naturally. So there is a, that royal connection. Very cool. Well, thank you very much, Alex Willis. Is You're there anything welcome. else we should leave you to tell people to look forward to during the championships this year um, that you have coming I mean, in all I, your many... I would say this, um, you know, follow us. Follow us on Twitter <laughs> yeah. uh, or, you know, Facebook, Instagram, whichever one you and like. visit the website. I don't visit always the visit website. the websites that often, but you guys do an incredible amount of content. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've checked out the new .com, but what we've tried to do is um, just make it much more simple to use, but also make live scoring much more accessible. Um, so it's it's always there. It's on a screen on the homepage on the right, and it also clicks you through to match highlights and stuff. 
And uh, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but we do have moving video in our homepage, That's which is... Cool. Um, it's hypnotic. It is, yes. Uh, I like that you said that. It's, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think you're Feedback, pre- welcome. Anytime. I, I think you're pretty cool too as well. You're oh, on Twitter as well also, I at Alice Willis. You should follow her as well. And you are on various social channels, Beyonce concerting and stuff on your Instagram and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my finest moment. We, I don't know if you want to talk about that. But oh, was, I know. I'm happy to, was, because it's not amused. actually my fault. No, sure. Um, so what happened there? Explain, so, explain this story. So I uh, went to Beyonce. And, um, at the O2? At the O2, yeah. It was last year. And I was so excited about it that I um, Instagrammed a photo of it. And in Instagram, I chose to also share it on Twitter. And I don't know if anyone's been bitten by this, but sometimes the Instagram app slightly messes up if you've got more than one Twitter <laughs> account. And um, unbeknownst to me, it posted my tweet to the Wimbledon Twitter account, which at the time had around maybe 1.2 million followers. It's about 1.6 million now. By Very way. nice. Um, and uh, I didn't realise. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, put and my I- phone away for the next two and a half hours of the concert got it out the next day and uh, or you know, later that evening and I had quite a few text messages uh, a few uh, sort of whatsapps and a whole bunch of tweets and uh, <laughs> my favorite one was uh oh, so apparently some girl called Alex Willis runs Wimbledon Twitter okay <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was something funny like it was like oh it turns out Wimbledon is just some girl named Alex Willis or something it was this grand disappointment but I think that no one should ever be disappointed by you because you're quite oh. quite wonderful thank, thank you, you very, very much, much my willis thank you for having me no problem and do you have a, do you have an outro song an want? outro song oh my god that you want to choose i feel uh, like i feel like I, I would steer you to something that we sang one directionally in our melbourne accommodations oh yes I don't have to. The, the night of the cereal eating yes willis and i shared a lodging i'll show you up in 2013 mm-hmm. and, and 12 yeah and 14 yeah yeah but 13 uh, was the most memorable of the, th- of the three, I think. What's the one about beautiful? Your... That what makes you beautiful? Yes. We'll do that. All right. Thank you very much, Willis. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Wimbledon. And back to the rest of the show. Well, thank you guys very much for listening to this episode. Again, thank you, Alex, for being back on the show live again and on tape. Uh, if you want to follow along with the show live and on tape, you can do so by liking us on Twitter at NCR, no, following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. If you have questions for the show, send us emails at no two, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to the show on any podcast app of your choice, which gets you episodes delivered automatically, which is cool. And on iTunes, if you're there, leave us reviews. We appreciate those quite a bit. Uh, the executive producers of No Challenges Remaining are Pancha Resendez of TennisBalls.com and Tal Woolley. Courtney, you got rants? I got, haven't seen you in a couple weeks. What's I got on your rants. Mind? I got raves. I'm going to focus on my rave because I'm going to be positive. Iceland. Let's talk about Iceland yes, and how do. wonderful, wonderful addition to the uh, UEFA Euro 2016 tournament they have been. Iceland, a team that I don't think anybody really had too many uh, expectations for coming into the Euros. Their first, uh, what is it, their first international competition or first Euros, at least at a minimum. Um, yeah, they, they would never would have made a World Cup, I don't think. Right, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, tiny nation, very small population. 
fielding this team that goes out there, gets drawn into a group alongside Portugal, Austria, Hungary, you know, all experienced uh, European teams. And somehow, somehow they qualify into the knockout stage. They, they uh, cause Cristiano Ronaldo to just rant and rave about them being small mentality and they're never going to win the Euros. And Iceland's like, yeah, okay. Um, and uh, who cares? Um, and yeah, they just had an incredible <laughs> tournament so far. And I bought an Iceland jersey, which I love. Did um, you buy it? Did you get it in person? Do you have it? I have it. Get- no, oh, I have awesome. it. I just, I, I've been in transit, so I couldn't like take a, I didn't ever had bandwidth to take a picture and post it during the game. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I love it. It's great. And yeah. And, and the thing that I love about the Iceland team and the whole story behind them uh, well, there's two things. One is if you're not following Reykjavik Grapevine, you need to do it on Twitter <laughs> because my Lord, are they dominating the Euros? It's a English language um, culture magazine uh, based out of Reykjavik. And uh, they've been live tweeting all of the uh, the games. And hashtag Iceland smites. Yep. Hashtag all caps Iceland smites and hashtag Euro saga. And they just invoke all of the Icelandic history and mythology into just hilarious match commentary. So I highly recommend that you follow them. Um, If you follow me, you've probably seen me retweet them quite a bit. Um, But the thing that I love about them is because when you watch the Euros or when you watch World Cup, because soccer, football, is so big, obviously, internationally, um, the stakes are so high for these countries and especially maybe because I'm old enough to remember USA Colombia at the World Cup and the guy mm. who got shot yeah. <laughs> because of the own goal. Um, Escobar, yeah. Escobar, yeah. Like, I always just think that these international competitions are just so heavy, you know, like that. that and so because of that, it's sometimes hard to really enjoy um, because you know that the team that loses or the guy that screws up this is going to haunt him like forever. That's why I hate penalty by I hate shootout so much because there's always just the guy who missed. Exactly. And And that's just going to be him to score. It's not like scoring scoring is never remarkable in a shootout. You're just supposed to do it. Right. It's supposed to be a tap in. And if you screw it up, you are the goat forever in your country. Yeah. And it's like, and for me personally, like that's really stressful. Like as much as I, you know, there are some people like I love hating on Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't like Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm sorry. But like, so when he misses penalties or when he misses free kicks, I love so it. Funny. It's just I, I, laughter. I, thought, I tweeted, but Renee Denfeld and I were in a restaurant in Bielefeld, Germany, which is the city near Halle where we were staying and watching the Portugal Austria game. And literally when he missed that, when he hit the post on his penalty shot, like the entire restaurant burst into applause and like cackling. <laughs> and it was just was such a reminder of why Schadenfreude is a German word and it's all tremendous. <laughs> oh, I love it. I wish I could have been there. But yeah, so so that's kind of the heaviness that surrounds you know, people are throwing flares and there's hooliganism out on the streets and there's just kind of a seriousness. Yeah, there's just a seriousness about football that it just drives me a little nuts and it makes me very hesitant to really like throw myself completely into it. So what I love about Iceland is that they're having fun with it. Like there's just nothing but pure joy. They qualified and like for the, for the Euros. So everything was already a win. And, and then they go and have these runs and they have these, these games where, you know, they, they, they score goals and they're right there and they qualify into the knockout stage and it's fun. And they have people laughing about it. And, enjoying it and we can, there's just a purity about it that i just really really love and so there's a 
a levity, I think, and I don't mean that as, as a way to dismiss Iceland in any way, shape, or form, because clearly I'm rooting them to just absolutely destroy England. Mm-hmm. Um, Iceland smites England would be amazing. Sorry, mm-hmm. England. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it, it's just joyful. It's fun to root for them. Um, kind of in the same way that, weirdly, as much as I rip on the U.S. men's national team, um, it's kind of fun to root for them at the World Cup because honestly, like if they screw up, that's kind of what we expect anyway. No one's going to get shot. No one's going to be like, uh, go down in like the history as being like a tremendous choker or failure because football's just not that big in the States. Like, I'm sure that we don't less, care enough. I'm sure that less than 5% of people in the U.S. right now could tell you who we, who knocked us out of the last World Cup. They wouldn't know. No, exactly. Precisely. So that's the thing is like, so no one really cares. So it's kind of fun to root for the U.S. men's national team. And when we're in the, the World Cup, like, it's hilarious, you know, like, we're stupid. We're stupid Americans rooting for our flag. And but we're having kind of fun with it. Like, we're not really taking it uber seriously, as much as like, you know, most of the other teams in the competition. So that is Iceland to me in the Euros. I'm still obviously rooting for Germany. Those are my boys. But Iceland, do your thing. You earned your spot. Go take out England. There you go. Um, and yeah, I will say, Renee, actually, Renee Denfeld, we were talking about it. And because I was rooting for, who was it? Northern Ireland, I want to say, against Ukraine at some point in the holla. Uh, they were winning, and maybe, or maybe it was Wales. I don't know who, which one, one of the small countries. And he was asking me, like, why Americans always root for underdogs, because that apparently is not really a German trait. Um, <laughs> and, I, yeah, it's just, that's one of the things that I've liked so much about this Euros, is that all these small countries are doing so well. Obviously, Iceland, Northern Ireland, through the knockout stages, Wales. Uh, uh, Ireland. Ireland, and, and uh, yeah, and those are the four. And I guess Croatia is more of an established power, but a fairly small country in population, too. So that's a, just a great slate, and just very cool to see the minnows doing well in the uh, big european pond my planned rave slash rant was all i, I was pretty sure you were going to talk about iceland so mine is going to be also about iceland more particularly the most important moment in iceland cinema history which is the final scene of mighty ducks 2 and i was re-watching it as of course as i was as i was watching at some point this Iceland run and it, there's just so many things I don't want to say wrong with it but just like completely <laughs> ridiculous about it so let's start off I'm watching it live again I'll sort of live narrate this uh Gordon well, first, before, comes up, before people yeah. before, before people before we go on people need to know we love this movie of course most Americans of our kind of age range love this movie would, and adore would, it. Would have seen it t- dozens of times. Dozens of times. Uh, kind of set up the general plot, Ben, so that people who haven't watched Mighty Ducks 2, D2 as we call it, uh, will at least understand what you're narrating in the end. Well, first I'm going to say there are huge spoilers coming up here. So so if you're, if you're all <laughs> there conscious... There are a lot of plot twists. <laughs> if you're at all conscious about... Uh, what spoilers for my ducks one or two uh might tune out now go watch the movies and come back for this you'll understand it all um because they're worthwhile movies i'm i'm guessing they hold up decently well they my totally ducks do one, my ducks one this underdog team does well in minnesota and because of that they are for some reason it's never clear decided to just make that team pretty much into the national team with a few stereotypical additions from around the country like the really fast uh latino kid who can't skate stop and the Asian figure skater kid, and the thuggish guy from Chicago, and most importantly for this scene, the girl from Maine, 
Julie the Cat Gaffney. Julie who, the Cat Gaffney. Who just rides Legend. behind as the backup goalie until, for some reason, after having played almost no role in this entire movie, <laughs> Julie Gaffney, <laughs> Gordon Bombay, the coach, uh, erstwhile coach, uh, who got into this uh, children's sport because of his DUI arrest, which I think people overlook. It's just like how bizarre this is. But that's how he got into children's sports um, because he got a DUI. Uh, but he decides to go with Julie Gaffney to face down uh, Icelandic star Gunnar Stahl in the final scene. So... The scene starts with him. It's it's on YouTube titled The Most Epic Scene in Movie History. It's the name of the movie. Accurate. You got the facts. Accurate. This, uh, Accurate. He tells Julie that, that Gunnar Stahl only has one move. He has a triple deep and then goes glove. He's fancy. He always goes glove. First of all, when would Gordon have watched Gunnar Stahl in a shootout before? Because there hadn't been any others in the tournament or anything. But he's convinced that, that his player is going to do this one thing. So he switches the goalie mid-shootout for the final round of the shootout against Goldberg, who'd done fine this entire time. If Goldberg takes this like a champ, by the way. Goldberg just like happily exits stage left for the biggest moment of the tournament after having worked the whole time to get there. So Julie, Julie goes in. And but she, just but she's been given the starting role because – or she – she's given she's allowed to go in here because she has a quick glove that's right. that's kind of supposed to be why she gets slotted in is because I, julie the cat no. gaffney has a quick glove and yet that asset was not worthwhile the whole rest of the tournament it's yeah the, but they foreshadow it early in the movie i get they do they, they they do say that she's fancy and there's some light sexism involved but gordon overcomes all of that in the face of uh this big moment and then, so then, okay, this happened in the first That's movie, too. But this triple deke they talk about is absolutely nothing. It's literally uh, Gunnar Stahl stick-handling, basically just shuffling the puck back and forth, left and right, as he skates forward. Like, anyone would do this. It'd be odd not to do this. And then Gunnar Stahl comes to a complete stop. In which mid made shot, no sense. Which no and he winds up for a slap shot, and he's pretty far from the net. You see where the camera stops in front of this great cinematic shot of the Iceland flag and the U.S. flag next to each other. He's, like, well far outside the net. He takes this big wind-up slap shot. He shoots, and it clearly gets stopped because it doesn't go in the net. And yet no one in the arena reacts for a solid, like, 10 seconds. I understand that puck is not the easiest thing to track with your eyes, when at a game, but of the 18,000 people in Arrowhead Arena, surely someone would know that Julie Gaffney had prevented this puck from going in the net before she stands up and, and courageously flips it out of her glove and it falls to the ice and everyone cheers and cheers and cheers. It's just the most bizarre suspension of disbelief. Also, this USA team changed into, rejected their patriotic US jerseys and changed into Mighty Ducks jerseys <laughs> before the third period of the game, <laughs> which this is clearly a pre-9-11 movie. Because can you imagine, like, people, like, trading, getting rid of their USA gear for something else mid-game as an American team being a plot line now? This would not happen. That's yeah, um, probably true. Although it's supposed to be, like, let's remember who we are. Like, let's, like, we're the Ducks. Right, we're... but but how do you remember who you are by rejecting Team USA? You know, sometimes, let's, let's be honest, Americans, sometimes we all do it. <laughs> That's fair. So anyway, so all the Ducks win, they celebrate. The arena graphics people are ready with all these big duck winds and uh, graphics, like as if they knew this whole mutiny from USA would happen the whole time. <laughs> uh, the Americans are celebrating; it's all great. Julie falls down immediately because she wasn't maybe the best player at this point, but still got the job done. Um, and then Gunnar skates slowly back to his bench, where all the Icelandic adults clearly are are are, are, hung, are sitting with their with their uh, heads hanging. 
and the coach comes up to him and he says, Gunnar, you lost it for me. He lost it. And Gunnar stares back at him and says, you lost it for yourself. You lost it for yourself. Let's go shake their hands. Let's go shake their hands. And what's wrong with this is Gunnar definitely lost this game. Play. <laughs> Gunnar, Gunnar You're such an a-hole. No, he didn't. Gunnar was out there and had the shot, and he was like the best player and lost to a goalie who hadn't done anything. This coach did everything totally right. He was the dominant coach in the tournament. Was he wrong to put Gunnar out there? No, because Gunnar was the Hold better on. player. First Gunnar of all, dropped the ball. And, he... and the coach had to do with so much unexpected things. There was a roping penalty in this game. How could the Iceland coach have prepared for that? All things being said, the Edison coach did a great job. He did not. He played a dirty, dirty final game. Remember? Three, two minutes. Well worth it. Come on. That's dirty. No, dirty no, 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 no. Dirty no. doesn't mean bad. Dirty Dude. just means dirty. But he's, but, it's, he, but he's encouraging his group of kids to go take these kids out. Like in an unsportsmanlike way. Like but not in the way that like the Chicago, the Bash brothers or whatever, like, uh, Colton and whatever his face Fulton was. Fulton Reed and yeah. Yeah, Fulton Reed and yeah. Colton. Like, you know, like he was specific. It was like, you know what it was? It was like Karate Kid. Yeah. The sensei is like going around telling him to sweep the leg, take him out, take him out, take him out. And then at the end, like, you know, can't the dude, the dudes can't do it. And it, it just, does, it does reflect on the coach. Yes, you're the one that got your butt kicked, but like the coach didn't coach you right. I mean, I don't think there was any need for the coach whose name I'm blanking on. I'm sure yeah, it's I can't remember. It sounds really evil for him to have said that to this presumable child even though he's clearly like 24 old 24 year old actor um when he comes to the bench to single him out but it's just not the coach's fault it's not like we talked about with shootouts there's always a goat and this time it's gunner stall and he should have borne that responsibility uh more you know maturely. what i have another rant and it has to do with this why are you destroying my childhood like this it's not cool man that scene is freaking epic it <laughs> is amazing great. i oh, bought it the first great. time i would buy it again now if i rewatched it, i'd be like oh I'm mostly raving about this because great movies can take these ridiculous leaps and survive. And we still all think this movie's great. Everything about D2 is just great. I mean, there's, I'm guessing watching it back, I would find something's problematic, like the bizarre tie-dye jerseys from Trinidad and Tobago with the steel drums and everything, and they sucked. And that <laughs> but that's probably, so Disney. Like, you know, like that happens in – it was like a, a, cut, a cut reel from like Cool Runnings, which is also problematic on every <laughs> a bunch yeah. of different levels. So, I mean, but all, I, I'm curious. I would like to go watch rewatch this whole movie at some point. I think it holds up well. And hopefully those of you who like it still like it. And with go, that, we should probably get it. out of it's this great. show. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and we will see you guys after the draw comes out, Wimbledon. And maybe before, and also another special episode from our Scotland trip coming out in the soon future too. So lots of NCR plans for the near Wimbledon lead up times. Get excited. Bye guys. Island. Oh,